We pray again real briefly. Father, your word is truth, and when it informs our lives, we're better for it and you're glorified. And I ask that the things that we look at this morning would would do both of those, Lord. They'd encourage us where we're at and the things you've given us specifically to do. And through that, Lord, you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. I knew the... uh, Morning was going to be a little long. It's a quarter after, and our announcements, our opening just ended. And we're actually later than I thought we would be. Ten minutes later. So when I was thinking about the teaching this morning, I thought, you know, maybe I should cut my teaching short. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to. I'm too excited about what we're covering this morning. We're in the third week of a four-week series on worship and we've looked at worship as obedience and we've looked at worship at the Lord's table and this morning we're looking at worship in work and let me start with an excerpt from a new book by a guy named Paul Rude book's title is significant work discover the extraordinary worth of what you do every day he writes this the interview playing over my car radio was standard fare the host of a Christian program was interviewing a wildly popular contemporary Christian music star. The discussion landed on the topic of serving the Lord in ministry. The musician told the listening world how his brother was once a truck driver, but gave up trucking in order to serve the Lord as an assistant pastor. This drew hearty affirmation from the host, who was actually laughing at the comparative insignificance of truck driving The music star then recounted his congratulatory words to his brother. I always thought you had more in you than being a trucker. There are 3.2 million truck drivers in the United States. I turned the interview off and silently drove down the highway wondering, what are the truck drivers who heard this feeling right now? A superstar Christian just implied that 3.2 million truck drivers are less significant than assistant pastors. A massive question now hangs in the air. A question loaded with profound implications for the significance of your life and vocation. Are truck drivers the same drivers who transport our food, clothing, building materials, and church sound systems less significant to God? Ultimately, the only true measure of significance is how much something or someone is valued by God. But many people mistakenly believe God only values ministry work. By the way, you know, ministry is one of those religious terms we use. Ministry. So if I serve you at my home, I'm serving you. But if I'm in church, it's ministry. It somehow now becomes holy. I almost hate the word ministry because of that. I just try and say serve. So if I slip and say ministry... Forgive me. They assume, let's see, because it deals with eternal souls, in their minds, ministry is the only work that counts for eternity. They assume God places little, if any, lasting value on work that deals with the temporal things of everyday life. The implied ranking of our vocation is obvious. Additionally, when someone who holds that belief isn't careful with his words, it sounds as if he's implying that same ranking to each person's individual value to God. Our superstar probably didn't mean to imply that truck drivers are less significant to God, but that's what many of us heard. Now, we don't tend to necessarily filter our thoughts and our thinking, sort of our presuppositions, but but we need to. 
And what this guy was hearing on the radio, it's a philosophy that's been around a long time. And historically, we would call this Greek philosophy. See, and in the Greek philosophy, there's, there's heavenly things, there's ethereal, non-corporeal beings. That's the, the epitome of something, what it should be. That's not flesh and blood. That's ethereal. It's spiritual. And that's what we aspire to. But, but body things, uh, hard reality things on the earth, those are secondary. Those are necessary evils. And the church bought into this model and it was promulgated right through the Roman Catholic Church up to the Reformation. Some things are spiritual. That means they're holy. But other things, they're common. And that means they're undesirable. They're less valuable in God's eyes and to us. You know, the Reformation comes along and Martin Luther says, you know what? All of life is holy. But we still buy that old Greek supposition oftentimes that in God's economy, some things are important and other things aren't important. Or some things are holy and other things are profane. If we're a Christian, we need to understand that all of life is holy. All of life is holy to God. Listen to this. This is from... uh, Abraham Kaper, Kaper was a Dutch theologian and statesman the 1800s and into the early 1900s. He's well quoted among the Reformed portion of the church. He says this, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That God says to you and I as His children, as those who are bought by His blood, that all of life is His. There's no such thing in God's economy as holy and profane related to the things we're called to do. And if you remember back a few weeks to our first teaching, if worship, biblically, is the submission of all that we are and have to God, and you remember we said physically when you thought of someone bowing before their superior, it meant I'm offering you all that I are and all that I am and all that I have. That's worship. Then you cannot exclude work from the worship of God, and there's no such thing as holy and unholy service or ministry or work if that's the case. All of life is holy because all of life belongs to God. And in our submission to God in worship, we're supposed to bring that same mentality to our work world, our labors. Whether that's in the church, if that's in the household, if it's in the arena at the mall or someplace else, whatever it is, whatever we're working at or laboring at, we're supposed to see as an act of worship to God. We're to worship in our work. Uh, John Milton, famous English poet, went blind in his later years. And he wrote a sonnet called The Sonnet on His Blindness. And he sort of jabs himself because he makes the query, did I only owe God my life when I could see, when I had sight? Or does God also require of me the years of my relative darkness? See, God owns it all. He got it. It's not just when I thought I was fully valuable, and I could do all these things for God that it mattered. Even in my blindness, God gets that too. That's the point we want to hook on to this morning. We've got to change the way we think about work. The labors of our life, 
And this is true in the house. It's true out of the house. It's true if you're getting a paycheck. It's true if you're not. If you're, if you're just serving. If this is doesn't matter what the venue is. doesn't matter where it is. God calls us to see our works not as some preamble to a significant weekend. It's not about that we do the drudgery Monday through Friday and then the weekend comes and now we really get to live. But during the week, in whatever those labors and work arenas are, that's all to be offered to God as an act of worship. And in fact, guys, if we don't see our labors as worship offered to God, then the truth is you and I are living a life of idolatry. Because it means that we're living, we're offering ourselves and our contributions and our creativity and our energies to someone or something less than God five days out of seven if we're not worshiping in our arenas of labor, in the home, in the church, or any place else. If we flip hamburgers, we should do so as an act of worship to God. If we're changing diapers at home, we should change diapers to the glory of God. Dorothy Sayers was a British writer. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, not near as well-known today across the pond, but well-known in her own time in Britain. She wrote a number of things that are worth reading. One of them that's really worth reading is her essay called Why Work? And I'll quote her a couple times this morning. She said this, How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. See, she got it. Why in the world would anyone follow a religion that says most of your life is inconsequential and meaningless? And that if a carpenter came to Christ, that carpenter should become the best carpenter he can possibly be. That that is the appropriate response to salvation is to offer to God his work, his labor. Now, you know, whether you're thinking of Greek, whether we name it that or not, philosophy that says some things are holy and some things are profane or common, the incarnation of the Son of God, it blows all that away, doesn't it? God was spirit entirely, right, before the incarnation. And though we have theophanies in the Old Testament where Jesus appears to come on and take on a substance that can be seen and heard, God is spirit, the New Testament teaches, right? But then God gets His hands dirty, doesn't He? Because God the Son comes down to earth. He takes on our flesh and blood humanity. When He did that, He blew away any notion of the Greek philosophy that there's a holy and a profane and that the holy has nothing to do with flesh and blood, and getting our hands dirty. Blows all that away. Beyond that, look at Jesus' own life. We know that Jesus came to the earth ultimately to die on a cross and rise from the dead to cover our sins, right? He came as our Redeemer. You know, to seek and save that which was lost. So that's ultimately what He was about. But put that in perspective to the number of years on the earth. So He lives about 33 years. He starts his ministry at about 30 years old. That's when priests started their ministries under the Levitical Code. So he's about 30 years, about three years of what we would call full-time Christian service. 30 years without. Her her, uh, analogy of nine-tenths of life, that's about Jesus' analogy. So for 30 years, for nine-tenths of his life, he's not in spiritual ministry. 
for nine-tenths of Jesus' life, he's a truck driver. He's a carpenter. He grows up in Joseph's shop. He's a carpenter. He's a blue-collar worker. He's working the nine-to-five or whatever. Jesus is the model for our labors. He came down and most of his life was about work. And not as an academic and not in the temple. You know, Galilee, that was the far corner. That was the armpit. If you were in Jerusalem, that was the place to be. You know, Galilee up there in the north, that was the armpit. He's a blue-collar worker in the armpit of the nation. And yet, you know, he said in John 4, he said, I always do those things that are pleasing to the Father. So when he cries on the cross, it is finished. I've accomplished all the Father's goodwill. That means that God the Father was as pleased with Jesus' years in the carpentry shop as he was with his full-time spiritual service, full-time ministry years. If the praying Jesus Christ is the supreme example for us to pray, then the laboring Christ is the supreme example for you and I to consider our work, our labors, as arenas for worship because that's the way Jesus did. Listen to Sayers again here. She wrote, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself, for any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. She gets this spot on right. How could the creator of the universe come down in a carpentry shop and do slipshod work? Couldn't happen. And how can we as Christ's followers go to places of employment or labors in the home or elsewhere and do slipshod work? It's simply inconsistent. Jesus is the supreme example, not just of a life on a spiritual plane, but of a real feet-on-the-ground, dirty-hands life as well. He came and lived as a carpenter. You know, for uh, centuries, uh, Christians would look for uh, relics you know, pieces of the true cross of Christ, you know, or the Holy Grail. But you know what they could have been looking for? They could have been looking for the yokes that Jesus made in the carpentry shop, or maybe for a walking staff, or a table, or a door. Because that'd be a great symbol for living well, wouldn't it? For working in a way that brings honor to God. Because I've invested all of who I am in the work that He's given me to do. And that's what Jesus did. You know, not only does Jesus... uh, present himself as a worker on the earth. But if you look at the references in the Scripture to God the Father, there's tons of them that display God the Father as a workman, as an engineer, as a foundation specialist, primarily having to do with the creation account. But God describes himself as a farmer. John's Gospel, John 15, he describes himself as a worker throughout the Scriptures. So, you know, if you go to Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God is the one who's behind putting the the universe together, isn't he? And if you go to a passage like Proverbs 8, he sort of defines that again. In fact, it's all in building imagery. It's it's blue-collar imagery, if you will. Psalm 8 says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you've set in place. You see, God's being pictured as this guy is putting his hand down there in the stuff of this universe 
and he's putting it around and shaping it right where he wants it. Just with his fingers there. Psalm 102, verse 25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth. See, this is grunt work, isn't it? If you lay foundations, this is hard work. This is putting the bottom down that no one's going to see later. You laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. See, God's describing Himself as someone who went to work. Got His hands dirty. Brought order to chaos. Not only does God display Himself as a worker, but He calls us to work as well. If you look in Genesis 2, verse 15, this is before the fall. The Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Uh, Work, by God's design, is a benefit. It's a positive. It's not a negative. The curse did not bring about work. Adam and Eve were working before the fall. The fall cursed work. It brought thorns onto those flowers. It brought hard work to Adam and sweat from his brow and weeds in the wheat. But we were always going to work. This was a blessing. No downside to work originally. None at all. That was Adam's job. You're going to work. You're going to keep this good world <clears throat> Excuse me. I've made for you. Now Genesis 3.23, after the fall, God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Work was still part of God's commission to us. It has a different effect now. It's harder. It has a frustrating quality to it, but Adam left under God's commission as a farmer, as a worker, as a blue-collar worker, if you will. In Ecclesiastes, this is repeated multiple times in the book, I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his law. Ecclesiastes 3.22 To rejoice in the labors God has given us, that's God's doing. That's God's viewpoint on our life. That's not a bad thing to go to work and to labor in the home or out of it. It's a good thing, and we should rejoice in it. Work is part of God's benevolent plan for us, and arguably, the key arena, guys, in which most of us are called to worship is in work. It's in the place of our employment. If we're not worshiping God in our work, we're not worshipers. We're wasting most of our life. Now, when we worship, when we see work as an act of worship, it transforms what we're doing. It changes the way we see it. It also changes the benefit that other people get from it. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew 26. When a woman came to Jesus there that last week on the earth, and broke that very expensive alabaster vial and poured out that very, very expensive perfume on Jesus' head. You remember? And it was this extravagant act of worship. You remember the disciples did not respond well, did they? They were insulted. They were angry at her. That she had wasted all that cost, all the effort represented by that oil on that container on Jesus. But if you had been in the room when that extravagant act of worship occurred, what would you have noticed? You'd have smelled that ointment, right? It would have totally changed the atmosphere and the environment in that room. 
Everyone there, whether they thought it was a good idea at the time or not, everyone benefited from the aroma of that ointment. That act of worship, in other words, transformed the setting in which it occurred. And you and I have the ability, when we see work as worship, we have the ability to transform the arenas in which we are working. To bring the aroma or the echo, those are C.S. Lewis's words in one of his essays, the aroma or the echo of heaven to bear in that place in which we're laboring. Our worship at work should have a transforming effect on the arena in which we are laboring because it's an act of worship. My daughter Adrian sent me this quote. This is from a George Eliot work, Middlemarch, which I have not read, so I don't know the context, but I still love the quote. Don't know the heroine of whom this is said, but listen to this. The effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. All of us, you know, if, if we don't know that we're significant in Christ, you know what we go around life doing? We've got to find significance. That generally means we've got to be important. That means I've got to be more important than you because now it's relative. How do I know I'm valuable because I'm more important than this group? In that economy, if I live a quiet, hidden life, I'm nobody. I'm unimportant. If I'm a Christian, though, and I understand, I have significance because Jesus died for me and God my Father loves me. See, now I'm free. And I can work and labor in the spheres and the arenas God's put me in without any fear of a lack of significance. And I can make an impact on everyone around me. And it doesn't matter if the world hails me as successful. If God my Father has put me in that arena to affect those lives around me quietly, that's success. And you can live this kind of life. And by the way, this is most of us. Most of us are not going to be in the history books. Most of us are not culture, history, shifting, shaking people. We're not. For us, there's not going to be any chance of success if that's what it's related to. But if we can live in our spheres and arena faithfully to God, we change the lives of the people around us. We bring the aroma of heaven with us. That's life-changing. On your study sheet, if you've got a bulletin, one of the references there on the back sheet is the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the builder, one I love. Uh, he said, and the context there is not Christian, he talks about fate and the gods, demigods. But Longfellow there says, uh, all our architects of fate, working in these walls of time, some with massive deeds and great, some with ornaments of rhyme. I think I'm in the ornaments of rhyme arena myself. He says, nothing useless is or low. Each thing in its place is best. And what seems but idle show strengthens and supports the, the rest. See, he got it. That he talks about actually building it like it's a temple. That every little facet matters. There's no insignificant aspect of the architecture of that temple. Everything matters. 
So, and that's the mentality we're to take on to our spheres and arenas of work and labor. It all matters. Francis Schaeffer has a, has a book, and it's a great line. In God's economy, there's no little people, and there's no little places. If you're connected to God, you're not little. And your space, your arena isn't little either. Because we serve this great God. Our arenas of influence, our spheres of labor and work, can be transformed because we bring the aroma of heaven with us if work is worship. Guys, if it's drudgery, we are not transforming our arenas and we are not worshiping if that's the way we see it. This goes along with Matthew 5.16. You know, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A transforming effect because of what we bring to bear in our arena of influence. Uh, Andy Crouch wrote a book a few years ago called Culture Making. He refers to his wife, Catherine. She's a physics professor at a college. And she got this notion of, I can transform my arena, the place that I work, by bringing Christ with me and seeing that as a place of worship. By the way, if that helps in your mind, you remember in the Levitical priesthood, only the priest could go to the altar? Well, if we get the priesthood of all believers and that work is the place of worship, then our altars are wherever we're working. That's our altar. That's where we exercise our priesthood primarily. Not just here on Sunday morning. Again, think of how much of life is working. Our altars is where we're working. That's the place we worship. She saw her classroom as that place of offering. So first, she was an excellent physics instructor. But also, she knew this classroom is my sphere. So she'd play classical music in there to make it sort of a nice uh, aroma, arena to learn in. And she tried to put the grades, the highs and the lows in perspective for her students. She brought her children to her classroom so that her students knew life is more than physics or this class. And she's a whole person. And she's married and she has kids. And she made herself available to her students so that they confided in her, they trusted her advice. You see, that classroom became an outpost of heaven. The aroma of heaven was there because her work was a place of worship. And it transformed the place and the people around her. And that's what we should be bringing to bear on the places we're working. That aroma of heaven because it's an act of offering to God all that we are in that place and in that time. There was a janitor at NASA. This is decades ago. You'll know by the quote. But the janitor at NASA said this, I work every day to put a man on the moon. The janitor at NASA. So what's NASA's overarching mission at that time? I'm putting a man on the moon. The janitor's job exists to put a man on the moon. He wasn't put off by, I'm emptying the trash and I'm sweeping the halls, because he got it. I'm part of a team effort to put a man on the moon, and that's why my job exists. And guys, this is just to say that attitude is everything. The attitude we bring to our work defines whatever our end product is. Absolutely can't be otherwise. Attitude is everything. When the New Testament talks about labor or working, typically it speaks in the language of slaves and masters because that was common in those days. That was the culture. 
we take that and we tweak it slightly because today it's generally employers and employees. So you look at what Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 7, bond servants or slaves or employees or children, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with respect, with sincerity, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service. Not doing a good job only when you think someone's watching you. Like people pleasers. Does anyone here want to be characterized as a people pleaser? No? It makes us small people, doesn't it? If we just live to please other people, it, it reduces our life. It makes us tiny people, not large people. But as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Slaves, guys. Slaves, Paul says, look at your master as Christ. And then offer your service as if Christ is that person. So that whether he's there or she's there overseeing what you're doing, you're always thinking, Christ is my master, and everything I do, I do for Jesus. Now, the human master got the benefit of that, for sure. See, but ultimately, Jesus was worshipped because the slave was told to see your work as something that's being offered to God, ultimately, not just to that human person. Colossians 3 is more of the same thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, word or deed. That's verse 17. Verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let me ask you a question. What is not covered by whatever you do? What's not covered? What's not covered? Nothing, right? Nothing is not covered. Whatever you do, do for Christ. This transforms our thinking. Guys, if we think we're in a dead-end job, it changes everything. Because now I say, this may look like a dead-end job, but I'm serving Christ. And I'm offering this dead-end job work to God. And God gives me a reward. And I bring heaven with me. I'm an outpost of heaven right here in this whatever this would otherwise be drudgery, whatever I think of that. It transforms it because of my attitude. If I don't have this attitude, I'm not worshiping God at my work and in my labors. That's a loss. That's not a gain. Whatever you do covers every vocation, every arena of work, every manual or intellectual Labor. Man, I am doing great on time. You know, in this church, we have engineers and we have accountants. And we have software developers and we have government employees. We have homemakers and we have highway patrolmen. Now, you guys know Eric Anderson? Eric Anderson's one of my heroes. You know, I don't know if Eric's here today. You're doing well to get two words out of Eric, if you know Eric. You know, two words, you know, one following the other. But, you know, 
Eric Anderson has served this church crazy for at least 10 years. Eric got sort of our technical expertise going on the worship equipment years ago. Everything was Eric. And then he single-handedly built the Lion and Lamb website. This church doesn't pay Eric Anderson anything. Eric is one of my heroes. And, you know, I have my once-a-year talk with Eric. I take him out to lunch. And I say, now, Eric, if Eric Anderson is run over tomorrow by a bus, what happens to our website? And Eric goes, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> It'll run itself for a few months. <laughs> so, pray for Eric Anderson. Pray for his health and his longevity. See, Eric worships God through his work. I couldn't do any of the stuff Eric does. He serves God and he serves this church through his expertise in software. And guys, there's people all over the country, literally, who listen to announcements and teachings. That's because Eric Anderson chose to worship God through serving the church. Kathy and I were driving home from Indiana Friday. We crossed the Mississippi River. And we crossed a number of other rivers. And you know what? Seriously, as I'm crossing a bridge, I think, thank God for Sean Schwenson. And people like Sean Schwenson. Sean's an engineer and he works for KDOT. And by the way, if you're a government employee in these days, you don't, you're not feeling the love. No raises. Little esteem. See, but my friend Sean, he makes sure that the bridges that Kansas builds that they're safe for you and me to drive over. See, I don't want to be working on that bridge. I want Sean working on that bridge. And see, and when wages aren't forthcoming and increases and raises, you know, it could be a challenge to entertain a good attitude. And if Sean doesn't say to himself, I'm building bridges for Christ, he could do sloppy work. See, but... He's worshiping God in His work. And we benefit from that. So when you drive over a bridge, you think of Sean and Eric. They both work at KDOT, by the way. Yeah. You know, we also have highway patrolmen here, Brad Runyon and Ryan Mosher. I don't know if either of those guys are here today. You know, they, their act of worship is to help keep the highways of Kansas locally here safe. So, you know, if Ryan pulls you over and he's writing you that ticket, that's an act of worship for Ryan. Think... Let, <laughs> Think of it that way. That's an act of worship. And when you pay that fine, you think of it as that offering back to God. But you, you can see that there's a reason that God has us doing all kinds of different things. You know, there's the, the prosperity gospel says God wants all of us to be wealthy and living in mansions. And you know what? That's just a lie. That's not true. Do you know that God wants to spread His people through all of humanity? He wants us among the poor and among the wealthy. But by the way, He says He doesn't save that many that are rich. Being with the poor might be a better place to be if you're figuring the odds, the numbers. He wants us dispersed because He wants us to be outposts of heaven. He means for us to bring the aroma of Christ in all those spheres of influence we're working in. Worship isn't being a pastor. Worship isn't being a full-time Christian servant. If that's all there is, then 
What happens to the priesthood of all believers that all of us, 1 Peter talks about, we're called as priests. But if we get it, that our work matters to God, that our primary call to worship is through our labors, this transforms everything. If we're not worshiping in our work, we're living lives of idolatry. Uh, Listen to this from Dorothy Sayers, last quote from her. And I love this. This is a reference to Acts chapter 6. And if you remember there, the Greek widows are being underserved at the food table. So they're complaining about it. And so the apostles have been waiting on tables. And so they, they finally say, gosh, you know, we feel like we should be doing something else instead of this. She says this, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. Called to serve God in the arena in which he's already put you. The apostles complained rightly when they said it was not meat, it wasn't fitting, that they should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the Word. Now we get that, don't we? But this is her point. But the person whose vocation it is to prepare meals beautifully might with equal justice protest, it is not meet for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the Word. See, she got it. What's my calling? Now, sometimes we're working in arenas that we know are short-term. And and we say, um, I'm doing this job for the summer or for this year or whatever. But ultimately, what we want to have is a sense of calling And we call that vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin vocare, and it just means to be called. So when you think of Genesis 12, God calls Abram. And he calls him to be a pilgrim and a shepherd. That was Abram's calling. It was to be a pilgrim, a wanderer. Because God called him. Abram calls him by name, tells him what he wants him to do. That's vocation. That's calling. When I was a kid growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, if you talked about vocations, plural, that meant, are you going to be a priest or a nun? Vocations were seen as strictly spiritual, religious. That's Greek philosophy. That has nothing to do with the Bible. No, vocation is what God calls us to do. Whatever it is, and ultimately and ideally, we end up working or serving in arenas in which we think God has called us. Now, if I'm in that dead-end job or that temporary job, that is where God's called me in that moment. And we should bring everything we have to bear on that job, our creativity, our energies, our best attitude, you name it, we should. But ultimately, we want to have a sense of purpose because God's called us to this thing. This is what God's made me for. Winston Churchill in World War II said he felt as if all of his life Pre-World War II was simply preparation for World War II where Churchill almost single-handedly kept the English nation afloat morally. And thinking about German and conquest, you know, it was Churchill who kept them going. He said he felt like God had, had fit him, called him. That was his vocation. Ideally, we want to have a sense that we're in the sphere, that arena that God has called us. So if you're in something you think is temporary, you still want to bring your best to bear. It's the place you worship. If you think God's called you to something else, you may find yourself in a season of preparation. 
bringing your best to bear where you're at, but you're looking to get yourself where you believe God has called you to serve. So ideally, we want to live life with a sense of vocation. God has called me. This requires some sensitivity, but it's one of the things that's helpful. You know, in the church, if you think that the, the ministry that counts is what the full-time paid people do, can you imagine what that does to evangelism and teaching and discipleship? Where do you think most evangelism occurs? Do you think it's in the church on Sunday morning? It's not, is it? Do you think most discipleship occurs from full-time paid staff at churches? Nope, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that there's these foundational gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their job is to equip everybody else to do their job. So if you have the 5 or 10% of full-time people doing all the work, that's not what God's called us to. Every one of us is gifted and called, if we're a Christian, gifted and called to not only serve in the body, to be part of what God's doing in the larger world around us. And if we miss that, we're blowing it. And again, we're living a life of idolatry. To worship rightly, we have to have that sense, I'm plugging in with what God's doing. I know what I'm called to do. My gift is serving, and I'm intentional about serving. My gift is mercy, and I'm intentional about showing mercy. And the church gets the benefit of that, but so do the people around us where we work, at home or elsewhere. You know something that would be really spiritual for you to do um, if you can in the future? Start your own business. You want a spiritual calling? Start a business. Why is he laughing? I am dead serious. (laughs) He's laughing at me. You want to do something spiritual? Start a business. You have more flexibility in what you do. If you can provide a valuable gift or service or commodity to others, that's a good thing. If you can employ others in doing that, that's even better. You are blessing those people around you. We think like church planning, that's spiritual, and starting a business, that's not. No, church planning is spiritual. But guess what? So is starting a business. That's a spiritual endeavor. I've talked to lots of Christian guys, and Kathy and I, we've run our own business, and we've been through this too. Um, they'll say, should I, start, you know, should I launch out and start a business or not? I'm like, well, be hard-headed. I mean, do the numbers, you know, figure all that stuff out. But if you can, yes, do it. You can honor God as a business owner, and you can bless others. This is a holy calling. Starting a business is a holy calling. It's not secular versus sacred. Abraham Lincoln put it this way, whatever you are, be a good one. So I don't think I abused you at all on time. It's, 45, it's almost 45 minutes, so let me close with Paul Rood's work again, significant work. Listen to what he says. This is the bottom line. He says it much better than I can. The truth is stunning. The truth is that the regular, everyday, earthly work of a Christian's life possesses breathtaking significance bestowed by the touch of God's magnificent glory. God pulls the white-hot ingot of eternity from the forging fire of His sovereignty. Then, like master to apprentice, He entrusts the hammer to our hands. He says, strike it, strike it right here. 
This is your place. This is where I want you to influence eternity. Live the life I gave you to live. And so in stammering awe, we take up the hammer. We live our lives, our regular, everyday, toilsome lives. The hammer falls, sparks fly, eternity bends, and the Master is delighted. God, the maker of the universe, destines our everyday lives to make a difference. Yep. Fuel filters, tax returns, laundry, and southern-style barbecue are important to Him? Yep. Especially southern-style barbecue. A life as a gospel-driven engineer, florist, or realtor can be as meaningful to God as the life of a pastor, missionary, or humanitarian relief worker? Absolutely. There's something massive going on here. God's epic cosmic story. And we're smack in the middle of it. He knows your name and mine. He's given us each a life to live. Regular, everyday life. A particular place for us to shape eternity. You and I look at our ordinary lives and think, seriously, that's supposed to be epic? But the Master delights in it. He forges His masterpiece with it, and when we see what He's done with it, it will blow our minds. It will thrill the souls of men, dazzle the angels, and delight the heart of God and glorify His name forever. And He's talking about the places you and I work. Our labors. It matters to God. So, can you put Jesus' name on your efforts at work uh, that in a commendable way? Would that be a good thing? If people at your place of employment find out you're a Christian, is that a good thing or a bad thing for Jesus' name and cause? Does our work and employment enhance our credibility as Christ's example and herald? And does it bring the aroma of heaven to those around us? Guys, if we're not worshiping at work, we're idolaters. And listen, on this whole deal, we pay lip service to these verses from Ephesians and Colossians. Do everything for the Lord. Oh yeah, I'm serving the Lord. And then I have this terrible attitude. It's lip service. We're kidding ourselves. We need to get real. We need to get real as servants of Christ worshiping Him, the place He's put our altar. And it should involve everything we are and have. All our creativity, our thoughtfulness, our prayer, our consideration. And if it doesn't, we're offering cheap worship to God and He's worth more than that. Father, would You transform us more fully into Your worshipers? God, would you help us have done with small-minded thinking and thoughts of life as drudgery instead of an opportunity to worship you and glorify you? God, would you help us do away with lip service to these truths from your word? And would you convict us, Lord, in the moment to help us offer to you our work and our labor to your eternal glory in Jesus' holy name. Amen.